But we will be working from John 12, but I'll be referring to the other Gospels as well. So if you hear something thrown out there that isn't right here, it's most likely coming from one of the other Gospel accounts of this story. Now picture Jerusalem. I don't know if you have any idea what it might look like. But try to imagine Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago. Okay? No electricity or cars or anything. Just people in sandals and hot, dusty, windy terrain. This is Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. And it's Passover. Now during the Passover, Jews would converge on Jerusalem from all over. They would pilgrimage to Jerusalem... To celebrate and, and make sacrifices in remembrance of what Jesus did for the Jews in bringing them out of Egypt. Do you remember the ten plagues? God did these ten plagues to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. The tenth one was the killing of the firstborn. But God didn't kill the firstborn Jews. He passed over their homes. Hence, Passover. We're going to talk more about that this Wednesday. So, you ought to be there. It's going to be good. So they're converging on Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. This is a big deal. Okay? So picture Jerusalem. Now, in John 12, it says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast. The great crowd is probably a bit of an understatement. Historians tell us that during a typical Passover celebration, as many as a quarter of a million animals would be sacrificed. So that's a quarter of a million sacrifices. Sometimes it was one animal sacrificed for ten people. So I'm not really good at math, but I think this adds up to a lot of people. You can check my arithmetic there. I think I'm right. It's likely hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. So now you're picturing Jerusalem and picture the streets just jam-packed with people. People everywhere. And more people coming a huge, massive crowd. And there's also a healthy group of people following Jesus as he comes to this group. Okay? So you're picturing Jerusalem. Now picture somewhere off, like an aerial view of Jerusalem here. Somewhere off in the distance there's a mountain. And Jesus is coming down this mountain with his crowd of people. And as he approaches, the people in the crowd of Jerusalem spot him. A couple of them see him and they say, Who is this coming? Riding this donkey? Is this Jesus? Is this the one we've been hearing about? The one that raised Lazarus from the dead? And so the commotion starts to, to bubble up. There starts to be an energy in the crowd as he comes. So picture this huge, riotous crowd. The, the original language here denotes a riotous crowd. A throng of people. Just the, the land just pulsating with people. So Jesus is coming up on his little donkey toward this, this city with People just busting out of it. Picture President Obama's inauguration. Do you remember those pictures from the news? How people were just everywhere? This is probably kind of what it looked like. I don't know how many of these people were gathered around Jesus as he came in. And as they started to wave palms and whatnot. I'm not really sure, but it seems likely to say that there was a lot of people there. So Jesus and his disciples ride into town. And somebody starts saying stuff about Jesus. And somewhere, sort of a chant kind of breaks out. And we don't know who said it. Probably one of the disciples maybe kind of got it started. But it grew and grew. And people were shouting. My NIV says, 
They took palm branches like our beautiful children did this morning and they, they, lay, they laid them down in his path. It was like they expected this to be the king coming. And they started shouting. But that word translated shouting is a lot more intense than our English translation allows. It's more like shrieking, screaming. It's even translated croaking in some places. I mean, this, this is not a dignified, here, here, welcome Jesus. This is undignified, passionate, screaming, shrieking as Jesus rides in. Will challenged me to do an example of this in Sunday school as we talked about it. And I didn't do it there. I'm not doing it now. Will, you can feel free if you'd like to. No, okay. I try to embarrass Will at least once every uh, time we get together. So there's this electric current of excitement just spreading through this crowd. And they are just freaking out. I mean, like I said, this is not just a calm, hey, Hosanna. They're shrieking. And what are they yelling about? What are they shouting here? Hosanna. They're yelling, Hosanna. Now, if you're like me, you have to be wondering, what in the world does that even mean? For this huge riot to be breaking out, screaming, Hosanna. What are they talking about? I'm glad I asked. (laughs) See, the New Testament was written in Greek for the most part. The Old Testament, for the most part, was written in Hebrew. This phrase translated here, not translated, take that back. This phrase we see here, Hosanna, is transliterated from a psalm in Hebrew. So you have, not to get too academic here, but it's, it's helpful to understand. You have translation. That's where they try to take the Greek word and change it into the English words that mean the same thing. Transliteration is where they take the Greek word and they just use English letters to convey the same sound. So basically they transfer this Greek word right into English. It's the same, we're saying the same kind of sound that they were saying back then. That's why Hosanna really doesn't mean a whole lot to us. It's it's sort of borrowing from from their language. Now they, who, who transliterated this here, they were taken from Hebrew, a word. It sounded more like Hoshaya Na. Hoshaya Na. And I know it's always funny for a southern guy to try to say foreign words. But it sounded something like Hoshaya Na. So this was another possibility when we were thinking about what to name our dog. We thought Nard sounded like, pretty nice last week. Hoshaya Na Broadway has a ring to it too. Hoshaya Na. This comes from Psalm 118. Okay, now keep tracking along with me. So what we have is basically the sound of what they were saying, which is basically the sound of what the Hebrews said back in the Psalms. Now if you flip to that Psalm, you'll see that it's actually translated there, not transliterated. It's translated. I hope I'm not losing you here. It's translated and it says, Oh Lord, save us. So way back, the original meaning of this, this thing that we have here that says Hosanna, Literally just means save, please. It was an emphatic crying out, save me. It's what I assume a Hebrew person would have shouted if if somebody pushed them into the deep end of a pool and they couldn't swim. And they pop back up and they say, Hoshayana, save, please. This is what this word meant originally. Okay, now keep tracking along with me about this word. Over time, the phrase evolved as phrases sometimes do 
This phrase evolved over time. By the time these people are shouting it as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the phrase had evolved and no longer meant save, please. It was no longer an emphatic cry for help. It was an emphatic declaration that help has arrived. You see, this culture, they would sometimes say things in the past tense that they knew were going to happen in the future as a way to, to highlight the certainty of it. And this phrase was used really often in certainty of the coming Messiah. They use it you know, in temple and stuff to highlight the certainty that the Messiah is coming. So when they said, Hosanna, they were saying, salvation is here. Salvation has arrived. And it was emphatic. It was a salvation that they desperately had been longing for. And as Jesus rode in on his donkey, they were screaming, it's here, it has arrived. Salvation is here. So instead of being what one would scream if they were in the deep end of the pool and couldn't swim to get help, to them it was what they would scream if they saw the lifeguard jumping in. And they were saying, ah, Hosanna, it's here, salvation is here. That's what they were screaming about. Hosanna, I never understood what that meant for the longest time. I got so carried away, I've lost my whole train of thought. <laughs> ah, yes, I read about this word that it's been described as the bubbling up of a heart that sees hope and joy and salvation on the way and cannot keep it in. That's what was going on here. This is what was expressed by these shrieking, crazy, this mob of Jews. Salvation has arrived. What else did they scream? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, Matthew and Mark record similar shouts. You know, the Gospels are four different books written by four different men who had four different perspectives on what happened. So they didn't all catch exactly the same wording because, like I said, this was a crazy crowd of people yelling. But they catch very similar things. Matthew and Mark also catch the Hosanna thing. They also catch this about the king has come up. But theirs, they caught a little additional aspect of it. See, this crowd was shouting, the king has come. And they were saying, blessed is he who has come. And they were using the name of David. Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. They're basically saying, this is the, the next King David is here. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole history of King David right now. But when David was king, things were good. He was a good king. God blessed Israel <clears throat> when David was king. They had victory. He fought for them. And no one ruled over them when David was king. See, right now, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, Rome is ruling over everything. So they see Jesus coming and they think, this is it. This is the Messiah. He's come. Our new king David is here. And no one Rome. We're going to be the ones in charge now because our king is here. And it was out of David's lineage that the Messiah came. But they believed and they were so passionate because they thought that things were going to be like they used to be under King David. So you're picturing this. You're picturing Jesus coming in on this little scruffy donkey with his disciples closest to him and then a crowd kind of behind him. And they're excited and they're shouting and they're praising and they're saying salvation is here. This is it. The Messiah is here. <laughs> and then the huge crowds around are, are they're freaking out too. And they're excited. 
And they're bringing the palm branches like you're down here. You can't see them. I'll grab one and hope I don't trip on the way back up. And they're cutting down palm branches like this from the trees and laying them out in front of Jesus. They're taking their coats off and laying it out in front of Jesus on his way in. And what that is doing is like laying out a red carpet, basically. It's saying, this is our king. He is here. So Jesus is coming through this red carpet, this makeshift red carpet laid out. And he's surrounded by this cacophony of praises about him being the Savior. And one of the disciples is able to take his eyes off of this crowd and look back to Jesus. One of these disciples gets a glimpse through the chaos of Jesus' face. And it's not recorded in John, it's recorded in Luke. But he sees Jesus' face. And Jesus isn't smiling. He's weeping. And these aren't tears of joy. These are tears of anguish and sorrow. In the midst of all this praise. Now I'm going to be probably a bit too honest with you here for a moment. Each week, I and Sandy and several people prepare for the, for the worship service. And each week we work together to try to make the service flow with the music and the message. And each week, I am usually behind and causing stress for people because they need to pick out the music and they need to, to make sure that it flows with the sermon. And this week in particular, I was very behind. And I said, well, the... the the uh, feel of this service is going to be celebratory. Because this is Palm Sunday. It's going to be celebratory. And the more I study, and the more I study, I came to grips with the fact that this day in Jesus' life, for him, was not really celebratory. The crowds were going crazy all around him. But in the middle of it was the weeping Savior. He wept. I don't think that, that this was the celebratory time for Jesus that we, we think it is. He weeps and he says, if these people only knew. He says, if they only understood what it will take to bring the kind of peace I'm going to bring. If they only could see what I'm really doing here. These people were only thinking in terms of the earthly kingdom. They were just thinking that this Messiah was here to make their lives a lot more smooth and a lot more victorious here on earth. They thought their king had come to kill for them. And they could not imagine that their king had come to die for them. They thought their king had come to pave the way for peace on this earth for them among all the other nations and they would be free from wrong. They could not imagine that what he came for was to bring peace with God. And their hearts had gotten so far away from God that they had no real concept that their most important need for a Savior was from their sins, not from Rome. And so Jesus hears all this. And he knows what he's approaching. He's going to be killed. He's going to be crucified. And he knows that many of these same people who are shrieking and screaming praises now will be shrieking and screaming, crucify him in just a matter of days. And he weeps. They, didn't, they just didn't understand. And when the Pharisees found a way to put him to death, these people changed sides because 
how can he be the Messiah, the King, <coughs> the Savior, if he allowed people to strip him naked and beat him to a bloody pulp and kill him on the cross? They just did not understand. And our text says even the disciples really didn't get it. Until after. But, even though the original Palm Sunday was not the joyous day of celebration for Jesus, Palm Sunday 2009 should be. Because we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of God's Word. We have the benefit of understanding what He really came for. So for us to say, Hosanna, our Savior has come, it means what it's supposed to mean. So this is joyful. This is celebratory. But only if we understand who Jesus is. We have to praise Him in the right sense. And what I find really interesting, kind of an aside here, what they were saying was right on the money. Everything they were saying and praising was, was dead on. The Savior had come. The King was there. He was the one who came in the name of the Lord. They just didn't get it. They didn't understand their words that they were saying. And I'm sure we often do the same thing in our services as we sing our hymns. How many times have we, have we been singing them? Do we really understand what we're saying? But what they were saying was right. And it was good. And in fact, in one of the other Gospels, the Pharisees come to him and they say, Don't you hear what they're saying about you? They're saying basically that you're God, that you're the Messiah. Won't you? They're asking him to shut them up. And he says, I'm not going to shut them up. If they shut up, the very rocks are going to sing out. See, God works through all kinds of different things to bring praise to Jesus. Remember a couple of weeks back we talked about Caiaphas, the high priest? He was talking to the other priests and saying, basically he was saying, we have to kill this man. And he says, don't you know it's better for one man to die than everyone perish? And he just thought he was talking about, it's better if we kill Jesus than for Rome to kill all of us. Because they think that we're going to have this military uprising. But then it says in the next verse that he unwittingly was prophesying. Because what he said was dead on. It is better that this one man die for all of us than us all perish. That's what God sent him for. But he didn't understand. So my prayer upon Sunday is that we'll understand and as we sing these praises, that we'll understand what it is that we're singing. He's here. Our Savior is here. He came. This Hosanna thing is so emphatic. I just wish I could express it better. It's, it's what you would shout if you had been stranded on a desert, deserted island for years, like Castaway. You ever see Castaway? You can imagine how he'd be shouting when he finally sees a ship coming. Oh, it's the salvation he's been longing for and is here. This is what Palm Sunday is about. The salvation that we have so desperately been longing for is here. He came. So this should be a celebration. This whole afternoon should be a celebration. I mean, it's beautiful outside. Man, the music we've heard and seen the children, I mean, our hearts should just be bursting with celebration today. But only if we understand Christ as our Savior. That's what brings Christ to meaning. 
I mean, yes, our lives will go better as Christians in a sense. But he didn't come to deliver us from difficult people at work. He didn't come to deliver us from all the complications of daily life. Like so many of us think, and we run to him for these things. Sometimes he would have us stay in these terrible situations because it's bringing about salvation from our sins. It's purging our pride. It's purging our reliance on ourselves. We have to get our minds up out of this temporal world that we live in and get it up into the eternity where Christ is working in our souls and our lives. And then our salvation will be real. And man, I pray, God, just, ah, I pray so much for that to just ignite our congregation. I want to just read to you some of the things that God's Word says about Jesus in closing this Palm Sunday sermon. And I'm pretty much going to leave it at that. And it's going to flow right into our last song. And I want you to know that my prayer for you is that you would experience the joy of Palm Sunday deeply, genuinely. Based on a, a deep and clear understanding of who He is as our Savior and our King. So just let these, these things about Jesus from God's Word wash over you as I read them. The Bible calls Jesus our Advocate. It calls Jesus Almighty. Anointed. The Alpha and the Omega. He is the branch from which we all draw life. He is the long-awaited groom, and we are his bride. He is the bright morning star after a hopeless night. He's the consolation of Israel. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's our deliverer, our redeemer, our foundation for our lives. He's a friend of sinners. Thank God for that. He is the gift from God. He is the glory of God. In fact, He is God Himself. He's our God. He's the head of the church. He is the head of this church. He's the heir of all things. He is our high priest. He is the Holy One. He's the light of the world, the good shepherd. He's the resurrection. He is the way. He's the judge. And He is the Lamb of God sacrificed for our sins. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Lord of Lords. He's our mediator before God. And He is our Messiah. He's the only begotten Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the Purifier of people, and the power of God. He's our ransom payment. He's our refiner, our refuge, and our righteousness, our rock to cling to. He was a servant and a shepherd. He was the embodiment of the Word. And He is our Savior and our King. Put to death for our sins, but risen again. To the artist, He is the one altogether lovely. To the architect, He is the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, He is the son of righteousness. To the baker, He is the bread of life. To the banker, He is the hidden treasure. To the doctor, he is the great physician. To the carpenter, he is the door. To the teacher, he is the new and living way. And to the farmer, he is the sower and the Lord of harvest. And he is our Savior and our King. Put to death for our sins, but risen again to reign in our hearts until he returns to reign over all the world. 
One day he will come on a white war horse. But for now he has come on a donkey, bringing peace with God. And as we sing the words of our next song, let us do so with understanding. Let us do so in a way that will bring tears of joy to our Savior. Not tears of sorrow because we sing without understanding. I'm just going to read the words of what we're going to sing in hopes that we'll sing them with understanding of what it is. And what number is it? 234. 234. 234. Our God reigns. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. This is the correct one, right? Announcing peace, proclaiming good news of happiness. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. He had no stately form. He had no majesty. I mean, imagine a Roman soldier during all this chaos. Thinking, what? A new king has arrived. The Messiah is here. I've kind of heard about this. And trying to peek over the crowds and they spot him. And it's this plain looking guy riding on a donkey. Jesus came in such humility. It's, a, it's astounding. He had no stately form and no majesty that we should be drawn to him. He was despised, and we took no account of him. Yet now he reigns with the Most High. Our God reigns. Out of the tomb he came with grace and majesty. And we will celebrate this richly next week. He is alive. He is alive. God loves us so. See, here his hands and his feet and his side. Yes, we know he is alive. Our God reigns. Jesus is our King and our Savior. Now pray that we would just revel in the joy of that this afternoon.